0: You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Hello and welcome to episode number eight of the Cool Collaborations Podcast, The conversation today is with Courtney Breeze, the Executive Director of the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation in the United States. We talk about Courtney's experience with the National Coalition, an organization whose purpose is to create opportunities to collaborate with people and projects from across the United States. Then we dig a bit further to explore a few of the experiences that shaped her approach to collaboration and led her to her current career. From all of that, we talk about some of the skills that make collaboration work. I really enjoyed my conversation with Courtney today, and I hope you do as well. Courtney, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Can you introduce yourself? Maybe tell me a little bit about who you are and where you are and and what you do?
1: Yeah. So my name is Courtney Brees. I am the executive director of the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation, which we also refer to as NCDD, because that's a lot shorter. Um, and we're an organization based in the United States.
0: Where in the United States are you located?
1: So as an organization, we're, we're everywhere, meaning our staff are all over the country. I'm actually also based in Massachusetts. I also wear another hat. I work for the Massachusetts Office of Public Collaboration, which I've done for many years as well.
0: So it sounds like you do just a little bit of collaboration in your sort of day-to-day work.
1: Just a little bit, yes.
0: <laughs> Can you expand a little bit on the, the NCDD? Like what what is it intended to do and how does it work? Give me the, the inside scoop on what that organization is all about.
1: Absolutely. The NCDD is a network it's a network of individuals and organizations all who are committed to helping people talk to one another have more productive conversations and discuss decide and take action together on important issues so as an organization you know we are basically there to help support all of these folks who do this work whether they do it in their professional career or they're doing it as a volunteer or just someone you know committed to their community who wants to bring some of these kinds of more collaborative processes into their community. So we offer lots of resources on our website for folks who are looking to learn more about dialogue and deliberation. And we do lots of events that connect people to one another, both to learn from one another but also to explore further collaboration.
0: So what does it look like if I was I have a project, How do I first understand whether or not I want to involve NC? How do people go from I have a project to I need some help and then go looking for that help? Cause sometimes you don't know what you, what you don't know, I guess. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, absolutely. And I think that's part of what we hope that folks that connect with NCDD can kind of find, um, both in terms of I I do need something, but also we don't know what we don't know. And so by connecting with others who are doing this kind of work and learning from their examples, we can also learn more about things that have worked well, things that haven't worked well, new ideas and technologies, and so on. So most of what we're about and most of the way people connect with us initially is through our events where we're we do lots of webinars because we are very broad in scope. And so we can't do everything in person. And right now we definitely can't. But lots of webinars where we, you know, either feature an example of someone, an organization that's done some really great work where they talk about it and how they did it and what they learned from it. But also just, you know, giving people opportunities to connect over, you know, some of the important topics of the day. You know, most recently that's primarily been how are we addressing the needs in our communities during COVID 19?
0: Right. It sounds like it's a relatively organic kind of process, but are there cases where you find people and say, "Oh, you really need to work with X or Joe Joe in at at X or organization. You need to go talk to him because he can help you out." Like, do you engineer the connections, or is it always sort of an organic networking style type of connection?
1: That's a really good point. No, it's definitely not always that organic networking style. I certainly talk to lots of folks who reach out who are exploring something and just want to kind of bounce ideas off of me and hear if anyone else, like I know anyone else that they might want to connect with. And so that's definitely a part of that is, you know, me talking to folks and hearing what they're working on and thinking, you know what, this person or this organization has done something that's complimentary. Or, you know, from whom you could learn something and I connect the two so that they can explore that. So I get to also play kind of a key role in making those connections.
0: Sounds kind of fun, actually. Like, why did you get into this role? Like, what drew you into this work? And it sounds like you're even in both of your hats, you're collaborating through the NCDD, but also through the the Office of Public Collaboration. It's just who you are, it seems a little bit. Oh, so why? Are, why? What? What drew you to this?
1: So I was introduced to dialogue for the first time, really, as an undergraduate student. I went to this um, small college in New Hampshire called Franklin Pierce University, not with this work in mind whatsoever. I knew I wanted to study social work, so certainly I was, you know, interested in something like this. But I just happened to be in a freshman seminar class where they used deliberative conversations um, as a component of the class. And so the first time I participated in a conversation where we were talking about, you know, we were talking about an issue national in scope, and I was talking with my peers about it and what might we do, you know, I had this moment of realizing that Everything I had thought about my role as a citizen in the U.S. was kind of limited. You know, I always thought of myself as I'm civically minded. I help out in my community. You know, I keep an eye on issues and make my kind of decisions on what it is. But, but then I go vote for my representatives and they're the ones that carry out the work. That was my kind of limited understanding at eighteen. Once I kind of experienced this, I realized that there's a lot more that everyone can be doing um, and that there's ways that all of us can have more voice in making decisions. And so that kind of, I would say, was when I got the collaboration bug, if you will. (laughs) And I've been doing this work ever since. I've been very lucky in that, you know, that experience continued throughout my undergraduate degree and led to a project that I worked on immediately following, which put me in contact with the Office of Public Collaboration. And that led to a position there where I was able to bring my understanding and knowledge um, in terms of dialogue and deliberation into their work with state and local governments. And then eventually also bring on this connection to NCDD. I met Sandy, our founder, back in 2009, and she and I bonded over our mutual desire of You know, being able to bring this kind of work to more people and have more people have the experience um, of what it's like to to really engage with one another in a different kind of way than what we're used to. And so, I've been doing this ever since.
0: That's awesome. So, when you think about collaboration, then you've been using the words of dialogue and liberation, which obviously is the name of the the organization. Is there a difference or? a nuanced kind of contrast between that and collaboration like how do you conceptualize those three things dialogue deliberation collaboration
1: so i think that dialogue and deliberation are avenues through which we can collaborate collaboration to me is very broad in terms of just you know opportunities where we we emphasize the the need for decisions or outcomes a product maybe that is reached through group process. And so to me, I look at dialogue and deliberation as those kinds of processes. And I look at those very broadly. I mean, I think many of the different kinds of process that people use to collaborate really fall within, you know, they are dialogic or they are deliberative or they're a little
0: bit of both. So in your experience, it sounds like obviously you've been doing sort of collaborative work for a long time in a couple of different settings. When I say a phrase like best collaborative experience, what comes to mind? Can you describe maybe an experience that sort of fits that description?
1: Sure. So a couple of thoughts come to mind. The first, which is, you know, one of my earlier experiences in doing this work on a a large scale was a process that the office of collaboration ran in Business, probably uh, around 2010 or so, and it was a it was a statewide collaborative process called the Forest Futures Visioning Process, and so that that project was focused on engaging the public in decision making around the next 100 years of planning for all of the state forest land in Massachusetts, and so that you know traditionally. In state government would mean, you know, some public meetings where they took, you know, public comments, likely talking to some, you know, experts on the subject matter, perhaps, you know, a smaller group of folks who may consult and then ultimately releasing some kind of policy document that people could comment on. We came in and were able to design a process that was, um, what I would call truly collaborative and worked incredibly well, despite it being a fairly contentious issue. Um, you know, when you think about forests, you think about several different main interests. You know, certainly recreation is a big interest. Certainly conservation is a huge interest. And then there's the industry, the forest industry, and Massachusetts is a small state. So certainly that... Can have a big impact on public land. So, what we were able to do was to make the process so much more collaborative in that the public had, as well as a variety of key stakeholder groups, you know, more specifically, were able to have involvement in the process throughout. One of my my specific memories. I really just assisted on this project at the time, but I attended one of the public forums, which we were anticipating would could be potentially quite contentious. It was in an area where there was a lot of land located that was involved in this. There was a lot of very big groups that were represented and were showing out to this public meeting, and they were kind of raring to go. It was still pretty early in the process. And Instead of doing our usual three minutes at the mic setup, which is kind of typical of public meetings, we organized it so that after the presentation, everyone moved into small group discussions. And so within those small groups, they had an opportunity to talk with one another about what their concerns were, uh, what their desires were, what questions they had. um, And all of those were captured and collected so that they could be, you know, brought to the agency and incorporated into the considerations of the document. And after that, we opened things up for the traditional three minutes at the mic because people had said to us at the outset of the meeting, you know, I don't want to do this group conversation piece. I just want to have my say. And so we said, okay, well, you know, if you participate in these conversations as we have them planned, um, If you still have something to say afterwards, we will make space for that. And very few people at the end ultimately needed that three minutes at the mic because they felt like they had really truly been heard, not just by the agency, but also by, you know, other residents. And, you know, ultimately that project, that was kind of the way that things went throughout in that people kind of realized that this was really an opportunity to think creatively and work together. And come up with a solution where we had a plan that met everyone's needs for the next 100 years, and that was, you know, really a big aha moment um, for me in terms of just how this works on such a large scale. Because I had certainly seen it work on a small scale with small groups, but this was, you know, thousands of people over an 18 month process, Um, and we really were able to achieve that collaboration.
0: When you went into that room with all of those people, was how structured was it? I I mean, I'm kind of getting into the details a little bit, but I'm curious whether you had thought through sort of in advance the kinds of discussions you wanted to have at those small tables and whether they were, did you help people with those discussions by having, I don't know, maybe a facilitator at the table or something like that to, to help bridge the differences between people?
1: Yes, so we did. We did have, um, we had small group facilitators at every table and that was a big undertaking because we had to have a whole bunch of folks. And we had a series of questions that folks were going to talk through. And so everyone had a facilitator, which certainly was important in that case. We really needed someone there to kind of guide that conversation and make sure that everyone was being heard. The other thing we did was if there was questions that were very technical in nature. We had some of the folks, both from the agency, but also some of those other subject matter experts in the meeting. And so we could bring the question to them and get a response right away. So that if there was something that really kind of held things up because someone had a question that no one you know, really could respond to, we had someone in the room that we could get an answer to, and that could kind of help the conversation continue.
0: So you mentioned people came in wanting to just to Stand on their box and and sort of say their piece. And you mentioned it kind of in a, in a roundabout way that people weren't really needing the mic afterwards. But did you get sort of a a direct sense from people that this was a different way of doing things? That you know their mind had been changed a little bit just because of how you did the work.
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I wouldn't say in you know every case that was the case, but I think for most of them they realized that you know, certainly we as the process facilitators, but also the agency were really committed to this, that it wasn't just window dressing. You know, I think that was kind of the skepticism that a lot of folks were coming in with was just, oh, you know, we're going to do these small group meetings and it's just a way that they're going to, you know, quiet some of our louder voices in the room, which, you know, in some ways that's true, but not in terms of silencing voices, just in terms of giving people equal voice. And so I think that was what, for some of them, they recognized. You know, afterwards, I do know a few folks came up to our facilitators who were leading the process and kind of said to them, okay, this was, you know, a lot better than what I had anticipated. Thank you. And certainly still some we didn't change minds on, but that's okay. We made some, (laughs) we made some shifts.
0: (laughs) It sort of sets the tone for, you know, all of the things that follow. Like, What I'm kind of curious about is, is what you needed to do with the agency or with the decision makers, even before you went down the road of a, of a deliberative or collaborative process to get them to a place where they actually were okay with doing it. Because my experience has always been that that's, that's a big hurdle to get over.
1: Yeah. I I think when you work with government officials, there's a lot of fear around going down this kind of collaborative road. And it's primarily based on their past experiences, you know, where they're used to holding public meetings. And again, it's that people take the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease mentality where if they shout loud enough and have enough people that are angry at them about whatever issue, they'll get their needs met. And so that's what a lot of them were used to. Certainly our our office had worked with these, this agency in particular, before and so we had already kind of laid some groundwork with them but a lot of it was coaching them through how to respond to folks who are upset who are really showing up angry and how to just you know kind of breathe and hear people and let people know that they've been heard because as much as as much as they may yell and scream that's primarily what they're looking for you know they just want to feel like they've been heard and oftentimes they don't feel like that's the case. Um, And that's because those officials kind of tend to respond, you know, from a space of fear and they're dismissive because they don't know exactly how to respond to that person with understanding, with empathy. And so, you know, honestly, after this project and a few smaller ones, a lot of the folks that we worked with very closely were capable of doing these meetings in this way themselves because they had had this experience and had practiced this with, with us, you know, where they had kind of that, that safe place to land. If something didn't quite go well, there was, there was, you know, a facilitator there to help out.
0: And you've obviously been doing collaborative projects, you know, across a you know, pretty broad spectrum would you say that you're good at collaboration?
1: I'm always working on it. But yes, I would say that I am I am good at collaboration. Yes, it's one of the things that I'm very passionate about. And so I like to make it part of everything that I do.
0: <laughs> Is there a, something that you do in, in your collaborative approach or process that makes... That makes you different than others that maybe is unique to you and your, your brand. (laughs) I'm using air quotes, brand of collaboration.
1: (laughs) Certainly. One of the things that I I bring into my own collaborative practice is some background in mediation as well. So I definitely bring a, a conflict resolution lens. So not just collaborative process, but also also really dealing with those kind of difficult moments and those conflicts that arise. So I think that that aids really greatly. I, you know, I came to collaboration, I would say first, um, and then gained my skills in conflict resolution, but they're very, you know, almost exactly the same, you know, um, but it basically brings that kind of level of empathy and also comfort with dealing with issues that arise in the moment. I think, you know, sometimes, We're trained, you know, if, if we do training or we read about collaboration, a lot of it focuses on just the process and kind of trusting that the process will, will work and it will. But sometimes having those additional skills where you can kind of deal with these little blips that come up in the moment are helpful. You know, otherwise I think I'm just part of it might be because I am, I'm an introvert. You know, I really emphasize listening. And I really emphasize hearing all voices, um, which are those kind of core things that are there to collaboration. But I think it kind of strengthens my own practice because that's something that I'm very attuned to.
0: Right. You know, I've spoken with a number of people who have always typically will emphasize the listening and the hearing. And I've been kind of contemplating that myself in that it, it must be more than that, in that I could listen to you quite attentively, but it's sort of what follows that, that makes it collaboration. It's, it's turning the listening into a bit of a back and forth, I think. And I kind of want to get your sense of that because obviously the first step is to hear, uh, well, listen and then hear, but it, it doesn't end there and kind of where, where does it go naturally? in the flow of collaboration sort of in your mind like what's the next step
1: that's a really good point i think it's about kind of that quick analysis of listening but but listening to hear what those what those mutual interests are or what our mutual values are and being able to to name that because i think that's something that we aren't just as people inherently Doing in our listening, I think that's a skill that gets learned and it gets learned through practicing things like facilitation and uh, mediation and certainly, you know, other processes. But I think that's a huge part of it because as you're listening to folks, whether it's, you know, the two, two people talking um, or a group, um, it's not just hearing each individual, but it's looking for those common threads or those common interests. I always like to talk about values when we're talking about tricky, tricky issues where people don't see eye to eye. I like to tell people that, you know, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on what we want to see done. But if we look at it from a perspective of values, we all share the same values. We just reprioritize them. So I may look at, you know, justice above safety and someone else may look at safety above justice. And that will change our perspective on an issue. It doesn't mean we don't both value those things, um, but we look at them in different ways. And so when I talk to people about that, that tends to click for them. You know, it's a different thing to listen for, to kind of recognize what we have in common, which may help us to bridge some of those differences when it comes to what we want to see happen.
0: Yes. I think what you're getting at a little bit is kind of the uniqueness of collaboration and people who are in that collaborative space because it's taking, there's a lot happening when you're collaborating inside everybody's head because you're all, you're, you're listening and interpreting, but you're also trying to direct in a way the conversation, not to a, a particular end, but to a particular kind of behavior. I think, uh, and I'm completely kind of just thinking this through even as we speak is that it, you're trying to direct like you say, you you point to values and you're asking people and yourself here in that space as well, having a discussion around, does this get us towards the end? You're kind of steering towards a positive outcome just by how you act and how you listen. Mm-hmm. Yes. So knowing that that's the kind of the the gamut of, of what collaboration can be, everything from listening to consideration of values and actions, how do we get more people to understand and maybe experience the benefits of collaboration?
1: Mm, That's a really great question. I think most of it just boils down to having those opportunities. You know, I think that can start on such a small scale. That can be just groups of... You know, family and friends collaborating on something. I mean, with the, with the pandemic, I feel like anything is possible these days. Um, and we may just need to start with what's simple and easy, which is, you know, all of us collaborating on something which kind of creates those, those connections right now while we might be far apart. So, you know, it might be. As simple as, you know, people getting together and kind of finding a plan for, you know, here's what we're going to do for the holidays this year, because we can't necessarily all be together. So, you know, what works? That's a super micro example. But I think a lot of it is just is having those experiences. You know, for me, I think that it's really the seeing it is believing it. You can talk about it with folks, but sometimes it's a bit of a, you know, collaboration sounds good, but to actually see it is the moment where you get it and you see the value in it. So, you know, I would love to see us using these more in our, you know, our more local communities right now as ways of, uh, especially with, you know, the technology that we have these days, making this possible for people to meet simultaneously, but apart, you know, talking about, you know, what are the current needs in our community and how do we address those. I've seen some of that happening organically and it's really wonderful to see where people are creating mutual aid groups and they're kind of coming together and, you know, pooling their resources and looking for ways that they can serve those who need help right now. And I think that's a great opportunity for collaboration to come into play. I think it's just looking for what are those natural, natural openings where we can give people an opportunity to experience it. And even just on a smaller scale, just giving people a chance to experience dialogue as an opening to collaboration. The dialogue itself may not be with an aim of coming out with some kind of outcome where you need that collaborative element, but I think it's kind of the door opener where people recognize the value of being together, listening from one another, learning from one another, exploring with one another. I think that's kind of the avenue into collaboration.
0: You know, I really like that kind of concept of that idea that you use, really, it starts with a conversation without an aim, necessarily, or I don't know what you would call it, like a a preordained outcome that you will collaborate, just that we're going to have a, a discussion. And then, as I think about it, what ends up typically happening naturally in those kinds of discussions where people are exploring a problem, whatever the problem might be, is that they want to take, people naturally want to take action and they feed off of one another at that point. So I, I hadn't sort of contemplated the, I don't know, the seed that starts collaboration as being something as simple as, you know, a conversation around a problem. And I know I've I've spoken with others around, you have to ease into these things. You can't just go, okay, you will collaborate. You know? Yes. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't work that way. People have to almost invite themselves into it.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. If you start from there, it's it's overwhelming (laughs) for people.
0: (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, you've talked about this to the virtual challenges and, and the opportunities. How has collaboration changed because of this recent shift to virtual? What are you seeing in your NCDD work, or just in general around that the the shift virtual.
1: Yeah, there's been a a huge shift, obviously, over the last nine months or so, um, out of necessity, and certainly I've I've found in my work with NCDD's network that a lot of folks have been, you know, initially scrambling. So much of this work, you know, we've always emphasized happens face to face, and so that to us has always meant in person. And so when suddenly. Meeting face to face was not an option. There had to be a lot of shifts and a lot of regrouping and a lot of thinking about, okay, how do we create that kind of quality, quality collaboration when we can't actually be together face to face? Because there is definitely something lost in a virtual space in terms of like people's nonverbal cues and just kind of the There's something artificial online. I'm not saying that it's not also still very valuable. It's incredibly valuable, but there's just, there's just some elements lost. But we've found, and I think a lot of people have found for the first time over this experience that the tools that are available to them and most, you know, being Zoom, um, being the most popular one right now really give them an opportunity to do much of what they would have done in person online. And so, you know, a lot of the conversations we've been having in our network has just been, how do we shift? You know, what are some of the additional ways that we can, you know, bring that kind of quality of process into an online space? Sometimes it's looking at ways to offer both synchronous and asynchronous opportunities for people to engage. So that it's not constantly Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call, but you know, what are other spaces where perhaps people can share thoughts and, you know, connect with one another, but they don't have to do that all simultaneously. So building different kinds of spaces that kind of meet people's needs. In some ways, it's, it's given us an opportunity to tackle an issue that's been existing for a long time, which is, you know, just the, how do you, engage a broader cross-section of your community when you're doing a collaborative process. Because, you know, you can schedule meetings at different times of day, different days of the week, Um, you can offer childcare, you can have translation, but there's always still parts of the community you're missing. And in some ways, the pandemic has really pushed people to think more about that. I've seen, you know, a lot of local governments are using using Zoom, but also using public access TV to make sure that everyone is keeping up to speed on what's going on um, and really thinking creatively about, you know, not just moving things to Zoom because that's convenient, but also thinking about those who may not have access to computers or the internet, which in 2020 is still very relevant and a very big issue, certainly here in the U.S. So it's, I wouldn't say we figured it all out, but it has brought a lot of creativity to how people do things. And I think from that, we're really going to find some new innovations.
0: Yeah, I think from a little bit of my very recent experience, actually, is that it highlights different kinds of problems or issues that you have to tackle. You know, like you say, not everybody has access to virtual tools. And then the other side of it is some people are more, I wouldn't say challenging, but they're not that well versed in the, in the technology. And it it actually frightens them a little bit, right? It's, it's a bit of a, a barrier that, well, oh, you want me to use, you know, a Zoom call in conjunction with, you know, some other whiteboard tool or whatever. And people are like, whoa, that's, that's too much. <laughs>
1: right, right. Absolutely. That just reminded me that uh, um, some of the conversations I've been having lately with folks has been also reminding them that, you know, good old phones work very well and conference calls can also work, you know, you have to be a little more um, heavy on the facilitation side, but that that's also an avenue to having people participate. It doesn't always have to be in this virtual space where they're on video, you know, for instance. So just reminding people that some of those low tech options still work really well um, and can really help us out right now.
0: Yeah, I. it's funny because I do I do fall back to the phone just for even individual conversations to get to give people comfort before they go into a virtual setting. I've done that one as well, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add that maybe I haven't asked uh, about today before we maybe wrap up with a couple of uh, sort of short answer type questions?
1: I don't think I have anything to add. I think, you know, I'm just encouraging folks <laughs> who are listening to kind of you know, try things out. I've been finding during this pandemic, a lot of folks have been using Zoom, you know, as a way to stay connected. And those kinds of conversations are very important right now and are very powerful, even if they're not about an issue, just connecting with your friends. I know I have a weekly call with with friends just to catch up and talk about our lives and what's going on because we can't see each other in person. So I think those are kind of the key things for us all right now. And I'm hoping that that will really encourage us to continue having these kinds of conversations and looking at opportunities as, you know, within our communities to work together going forward, because I think this pandemic has really just highlighted how much we all need each other.
0: Yes. And I think it's also giving us an opportunity to build Sort of a broader base of skills and, and approaches, maybe, so that we don't always have to even when when the pandemic has passed, we're not going to you know, go back necessarily fully to all in-person type meetings. We can now we now have a broader set of tools to sort of draw from. Yeah, absolutely. So, if you have a book, did you have a book that you would routinely give as a gift or a resource that you might provide to people on a routine basis?
1: Yeah, you know, on my, my favorite book to point people towards friends, family, certainly people starting out with doing or exploring this work is Difficult Conversations by Bruce Patton and Doug Stone and Sheila Heen. It's, it's like the classic book conflict resolution. And it's so simple, but so powerful. I've shared it with folks who are having challenges with family members. I've shared it with folks who are, you know, getting into this work. Um, I just think, you know, knowing how to have difficult conversations, which comes from listening and really looking at what people's interests are, not just what their position is, what they're telling you they want is just so crucial to everything that we do. And so while that's a book that I think most people have heard of, it's still one that I continue to recommend and share with people. I know my copy has certainly gone around to others several times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's getting a little dog-eared, you're saying?
1: Yes, yeah, a little bit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a favorite app? We talked about some of the virtual applications like uh, Zoom, for instance, but do you have any other Uh, sort of favorite apps that you use to support some of these virtual collaborations?
1: You know, honestly, um, I'm pretty, dare I say old school, because it's not old school at all. But when it comes to apps, I... I'm a big fan, obviously, of Zoom. We use Zoom just because that's something that most people are getting comfortable with. But also Evernote, which has been around for a while now, is a tool that we use within NCDD for our own staff's collaboration. And certainly we've used it when we organize our national conferences, which when we do that, we have a volunteer group of about 30 folks in our network who help us to frame the conversations we're having, plan, you know, the different elements of the conference and so on. And so that's kind of our go-to app for capturing, you know, all of our notes and giving us space to co-create things. You know, it's that that much like just Google, um, in terms of Google Drive and Google Docs, you know, anything that's people are used to and comfortable with um, are usually my go-tos because it is that, you know, as we were just talking about Um, when you throw something new and fun in it, it's overwhelming to people. And so I always go to, you know, what is something that most people know, um, and are comfortable with and can kind of jump onto, but I'm always checking out the new fun stuff. So maybe I'll find something else more, (laughs) uh, more cutting edge soon.
0: I, uh, just recently tried out, uh, an app called Miro. Uh, it's kind of like a big whiteboard kind of thing and introduced it to my, to a team that I'm working with. And, uh, it is interesting how it refreshes the discussion in a way because it is new. So there's that aspect as well. Like I had one person say, you know, I was getting a little zoomed out and then all of a sudden, you know, I was able to see people doing things on the screen mm-hmm. and you can do this in other ways as well. And all of a sudden they're engaged again. It's it's amazing how something simple can really make a difference. To energy in a collaborative space.
1: That is such a great point, and you know what? That reminds me two things I have used lately. I wouldn't say they're my favorites yet, but there's something that I've been playing around with. Is um, Google has a Jamboard now, which is basically to me, it's like doing a Post-it wall online. And so I used that recently in a workshop where we were asking folks, you know, kind of what are some of the things that they're still struggling with that they still want to learn more about and let them all put up their own post-its and then organize them. Um, And it was just a fun little activity that gave us lots of good feedback, but gave them a chance to do something other than staring at each other on a Zoom screen. And and then the other one is uh, Poll Everywhere has a word cloud function. And I've used that a couple of times where people just respond with you know a word to whatever your question is. And it just shows them in real time as that word cloud kind of grows as each of them responds. And again, it's just one of those, it's great feedback for the facilitator or for the workshop leader, but it's also just a break. It just gives them a fun little activity um, that's easy to do and you get that immediate feedback. So that's been really fun to play around with too.
0: Well, those are, those are awesome. I've, I've seen that word cloud in action and it, it is, it's actually quite fun to participate in because you're hoping your word is, where's my word in that cloud? You know, you, you go looking for it. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So my, my last question for you today, it's, it's probably the toughest question of the entire, of the entire uh, discussion. Are you a tea person or are you a coffee person?
1: (laughs) This is a pretty polarizing question, isn't it?
0: it? It is. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's funny. I, you know, I am a coffee person. 100%. I love my morning coffee. I don't have anything against tea though, for the tea drinkers. I have good friends who are tea drinkers and I totally respect that, but 100% I'm a coffee person.
0: (laughs) I like, I like how you ride the line there. I'm, I'm absolutely this, but that's okay for everybody else. I love that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was my most diplomatic response.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yes. You know, I I really appreciated our discussion today in terms of covering some different aspects of collaboration and also understanding a little bit about the National Coalition for Dialogue and Liberation. And and I think what I took from today was how we can maybe get more people, some of the ways we can get more people into these kinds of conversations. So thank you for your discussion today.
1: My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. This has been fun.
0: What a thoroughly enjoyable conversation with Courtney today. I really appreciate her taking the time to tell me a little bit about her work with the National Coalition for Dialogue and Deliberation and share some of her insights into collaboration. I think it's interesting that an early introduction to collaboration and deliberation in college and also an early experience, a successful experience, really shaped her approach and even a lifetime of work in creating collaborative opportunities. It highlights for me the importance of being involved with successful examples of collaboration very early on. I think the drive of many people in collaboration is to to give people a voice in the process, in the decision. And that was really reflected in some of Courtney's discussions today. I also found it quite interesting that some of the barriers to collaboration, especially in a government setting, being the fear of the high emotion or the confrontation that can prevent officials from wanting to be part of a collaborative process. There are certainly many lessons from today's conversation. Thanks, Courtney, for sharing. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list, so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.